This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Monty Altahami and Dr. Jonathan Namai. Good morning or evening or, or midday. Your favorite psychiatry residents. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is. Uh, I guess it's uh, to to it's inter inter podcast time right now because wherever you're watching it in whatever time that applies. To Let's be honest, everybody. People are watching it. It's like the British Empire, right? Like the sun does not set on this podcast. <laughs> People are watching it all over the world. Wow. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We're, we're getting colonial over here. <laughs> but we are back again with another episode. This, is, this episode is, is one of my favorite episodes. One of the favorite episodes that I recorded. Um, it, it really goes at the crux of what we do here at Psych Debates, um, which is kind of examine psychiatry, mental health, uh, psychology, and the delivery of healthcare from different perspectives. Um, and we have a very special guest to guide us through this episode, Dr. Awais Aftab, who is a, um, is a philosophical psychiatrist, um, but he's a clinical psychiatrist at Case Western Reserve University. Um, he leads the Conversations in Critical Psychiatry for the Psychiatric Times, which explores critical and philosophical perspectives in psychiatry and engages with prominent commentators. Um, we're really excited to have him on. Um, we're going to be discussing a lot of things uh, from scientific pluralism, from reductionism, from conceptual competence. All kinds of big words. Uh, yeah, big words, but very, uh, I was going to say big words, small meanings, but big meanings as well. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> well, big words and uh, that come from a big heart. Um, because Getting sentimental <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, truly, I'm excited about it. I think there is so, so much to be said. I think, you know, for instance, this idea of scientific pluralism, you know, which simply means that different concepts can be be um can explain the same thing uh it doesn't have to be just one thing that explain it the same way we can look at um water uh molecules we can also look at how water operates as a body of water in the ocean and how that operates and we can look at condensation all these different phenomenons mm -hmm. don't necessarily have to be broken down to the most finite or to the most um to the smallest element you're telling to me explain it. that depression is not a serotonin deficiency <laughs> no it is not a battle between i've heard this before true story i've heard it's about it's a battle between the white knight and the black knight have you heard i've this never before? heard of this oh my gosh getting medieval here <laughs> oh, yeah. back to the colonial flavor <laughs> yeah. yes exactly well you know i i i think it's very interesting for sure and yes. I, I i think it there is certainly uh different ways to explain the same thing and as as jonathan was was kind of uh, alluding to is that there's a neurobiological way of explaining depression, um, right? I mean, serotonin deficiency, what more do you need? <laughs> I, I yeah. say it, I joke, I joke, as you'll hear later <laughs> on in this, because obviously it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it might be that uh, there is a neurobiological element to it, uh, but also there is a behavioral element that also exists as an emerging phenomenon. So I think you can explain that different perspectives. Um, a lot of Dr. Uh, Aftab's work centers around con uh, conceptual competence, and that enables us to a little bit examine our assumptions and question them about our diagnostic criteria, for instance, why they're categorical as opposed to like dimensional. What I mean by that, we have very set defined parameters and conventions that are not exclusive to psychiatry, but we find in medicine, for instance, hypertension uh, being set at, at specific points and hypertension being set at specific points is a convention. Uh, that convention is based on what we tend to prioritize, which is at this point, this may happen. And psychiatry is kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, depression at this point may cause, may, may benefit from de from antidepressants or depression at this point causes uh, social dysfunction. Mm -hmm. um, 
We also talk about social deviancy, um, and uh, we also talk about they, uh, the lines or we draw between different disorders. But before that, um, visit us at psychdebates.com, right. the home of mental health debates, discussions, and education. I'm still looking for it's, your review that, that you haven't left yet, so please leave that review. I'll keep on looking for it. We are definitely looking for reviews. We appreciate the good and the bad. Um, if you can leave us a review, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts so that other people can get access to our content. Um, uh, subscribe to our newsletter on our Psych Debates website. Contact us if you have any questions or recommendations for future episodes. Um, we're continuing the format of the podcast as is as of now. The last one and this one have, have not included a formal debate, just a discussion integrated with kind of a questioning from from different poles of of the argument to try to make it more integrative that's right what are we doing here instead of just like talking at each other for a few minutes but i don't know you know we want to know what you think <laughs> do you like us talking at each other hearing my nonsense or do you like to hear us talking and having a conversation and hearing my nonsense i will <laughs> i'm happy to hear whichever one <laughs> Jonathan is just looking for more opportunities for puns, and he is truly punny uh, uh, if you give him the chance. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> puns are fun. P puns are pun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think we just lost a few audience members, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> well, uh, anyways, tune in for the episode that's about to follow. So without further uh, delay, um, the Psych Debates House calls on the motion for debate, and we begin the debate with Dr. Awais Aftab. Hey everyone, welcome back again to another exciting discussion. Today we have Dr. Awais Aftab, um, who is a psychiatrist in Cleveland, Ohio, a clinical assistant professor at the um, Case Western Reserve University. Um, he's a member of the Executive Council of the Association for the Advancement of Philosophy in Psychiatry and has been actively involved in initiatives to educate psychiatric trainees, psychiatrists about principles and philosophy. He also leads the interview series for the Psychiatric Times um, Conversations in Critical Psychiatry. Um, and so we're really excited about talking to him about this topic. I think there's so many questions, I think, as, as uh, you know, as I think about this, is this is in a way what we're trying to do in the podcast, which is uh, approach psychiatry from a different perspective and analyze our assumptions about what, what, what psychiatry is from different disciplines. So we're excited to have you on. Maybe you can guide us in our journey. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm very uh, honored and glad to be here and I look forward to our discussion. Absolutely. And so we, we always begin our uh, discussions with uh, kind of a general sense and sometimes a little bit of a controversial question, which is what what is philosophical psychiatry? Somebody might might think, oh, this is uh, just uh, using uh, Aristotelian or Platonian thinking to describe psychiatric principles. But what does it really mean? Yeah, uh, that's certainly I think it's been my experience as well that uh, when I when I talk to trainees about philosophy of psychiatry, a lot of the times they don't have a good idea of what I'm talking about. And they, they have sort of like ideas of various sorts of sort of like complex and, and boring philosophical theories. And uh, they might not immediately see how like philosophy could be relevant. But but in essence, there, there are several different uh, strands to it. Uh, we're, we're looking at the intersection of philosophy as a discipline and, and psychiatry as a, as a discipline. And one of the main things that, uh, that people have really focused on is, uh, is examining various sorts of concepts and ideas that, that exist in, uh, in psychiatry and analyzing them and thinking more clearly about them and applying uh, tools of philosophy such as conceptual analysis to elaborate them in, in, in a more uh, sort of like robust and sophisticated manner. And when we do that, all sorts of very interesting questions emerge. So for example, when we start looking at the, at the concept of mental disorder, we kind of like start thinking about sort of like what are the boundaries of that uh, sort of like you know what what are the factors that determine that that boundary what is the role of facts versus values in determining uh sort of like what 
where this concept applies or not. And and similarly, when when we start thinking about uh, sort of like you know about causal interactions in in psychiatry, like you know what what are causes, sort of like you know how do we make sense of uh, different factors that exist at multiple different levels of explanation, such as biological, psychological, uh, so social, sort of like you know how is it possible that uh, factors at these different levels of analysis can interact with, with each other mm -hmm. in a causal mm -hmm. manner. Absolutely. So, 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 so when we start sort of like thinking about these basic ideas and we start asking these questions, uh, sort of like you know that that's where, where where philosophy comes in. And another sort of like general theme is that uh, over the last several decades, uh, philosophy of science uh, has been a very active discipline, and it, it has been generally looking at how science sort of like you know makes progress how science understands different things uh sort of like you know you have uh, theory, philosophical theories of Karl Popper, Thomas Cohen, uh, a lot of other stuff and, and people have also applied those uh, ideas from philosophy of science to psychiatry to better understand uh where our field is at the moment and sort of like you know how to make sense of it. Yeah, absolutely and it's it's uh from what I'm hearing from you it's almost like working uh from first principle kind of looking at some of the assumptions and this is this is some of the themes that I've been reading uh, through in your work is looking at the assumptions that we make um, analyzing how we're making those assumptions and understanding that there are multiple explanations um, and they're not ex they're not mutually exclusive those explanations and one particular thing that I found interesting was the idea of reductionism and this is something that comes quite up in going through medical school um, sometimes you find yourself leaning towards the biological reductionism, you know, when you're learning about the physiology of the heart and the kidney and, yeah. <laughs> and try to understand neurotransmitters and how, how ultimately this, that is considered the penultimate explanation, um, of, of a phenomenon. I would like you to, to, to hear your opinion on that. Like, what do you think about biological reductionism, um, in the frame of psychiatry? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I think reductionism has been a has been a big uh, ongoing debate in in philosophy of science as well as well as philosophy of psychiatry. It's particularly relevant to to psychiatry because uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, we're dealing with multiple levels of explanations. We, you know, we're we're dealing with phenomena that exist in sort of like you know the psychological level that we explain in in terms of uh, psychological vocabulary, psychological concepts. We have social phenomena, but we also uh, clearly have uh, the neurobiological and sort of like other biological level. And uh, so th there has been reductionism uh, means many different things, but one thing it's often used to refer to is this idea that explanations at the biological level are somehow more privileged uh, than, than explanations at the psychological level or social level. And particularly that if we have a very good understanding of, of, of neurobiology and let, let's imagine sort of like, you know, we have a perfect understanding of, we, we know everything there is to know about neurobiology, then we could essentially eliminate psychological explanations and yeah, we could simply, absolutely. you know, we could simply <laughs> rely on neurobiology and we would have all the answers, uh, you know, mm. regarding uh, like, what the psychiatric conditions are and how, and how to yeah. understand them. And, and that has been a big uh, driving force. In, in, in general, re reductionism has, has been a big driving force in, in, in science. And if you think of it in general terms, it's sort of like the idea is that uh, something that exists uh, collectively as a whole can be decomposed into individual parts, into individual components. And that uh, what we need to do is that is develop a, a robust and comprehensive understanding of those individual components and individual parts. And if we do that, uh, we would we, we would have like a complete understanding of what the whole is. And and you know using that sort of uh, thinking, uh, like, you know, science has made a lot of advances, for example, like in, in genetics, neurobiology, uh, neuroscience. So you know reductionism as a strategy has certainly panned out very well. Uh, but in contrast, in the last couple of decades, uh, we, are, we are also starting to see the limits of, of, of reductionism. And we are trying to, we are understanding that when uh, components interact with each other in complex and dynamic ways, there are emergent properties at, at sort of like at higher levels of explanation. And that those emergent properties cannot be explained away uh, using concepts at, at, at the lower level. So, uh, you know, it, with, relevance, with relevance to psychiatry, it, this was sort of like maintained that uh, 
uh, even if we sort of like, you know, if you have a very good understanding of, of neurobiology, we would still not be able to eliminate uh, our, our psychological vocabulary and our psychological concepts. And, and those, uh, those psychological uh, perspectives would remain essential in, in how we understand psychiatric conditions and how we understand our mental lives. So the, there's a, the, the, so the opposite of sort of like, you know, the, the, the anti-reductionist tendency sort of like is, is the recognition that, uh, that there's an essential role for psychological explanations, for social explanations. And no matter how much energy, effort, research we put into neurobiology, we would not be able to eliminate those. Uh, those. So it's, it's like, if I'm understanding correctly, there are these various models that we use that don't necessarily explain the whole uh, in isolate or, or even at this point because we're still figuring out the neurobiology even even all together but there's these interactions between all of them so if i if i see my patients and they do um we could say maybe they have a lot of emotional dysregulation maybe is a it's, it's probably both the psychological and the and the neurobiological term but we say oh well this is due to trauma um, and we think about it maybe psychologically, uh, oversimplifying it, perhaps to say it mm-hmm. that way. But then, like we in in the neurobiological way, we say, oh well, no, they have an overactive amygdala, and yeah, so absolutely. there's this way to look at them both <laughs> at the same time and how they uh, how they interact. Right, certainly, you know, and and that is sort of like you know part of the the beauty as well as the complexity of psychiatry is that we mm-hmm. have these different uh, sort of like perspectives available to us. That when we're looking at a phenomena, we we can talk about the neurobiology of it. We can talk about yeah, changes, changes on fMRI scans. We're sort of like mm-hmm. we can talk about how neurotransmitters are changing, other chemical things that are happening, or how the activity of brain circuits is changing. But at the same time, we we have other uh, perspectives available to us as well. We can talk about phenomenology. We can sort of like talk about sort of like you know what what they're experiencing in that particular moment uh, the, the nuances of various sorts of uh, psychological experiences they have or we could for example we could talk about sort of like you know uh, a freudian dynamics we can kind of like you know talk about unconscious conflicts uh, or we could sort of like you know kind of zoom out and we can start talking about uh, sort of like the interpersonal relationships and how sort of like you know the 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 distress or the other experiences are embedded within a certain uh, social cultural context and are, are and are being influenced by that, and so we we, we you know we have this ability that we can kind of zoom in and zoom out at different levels uh, when we're dealing with uh, sort of like psychiatric conditions, and uh, and and all of these different perspectives offer us different advantages and disadvantages. And, uh, and sort of like pluralism is the idea that we need all of these perspectives all together. And particularly in psychiatry, the, this insight goes, goes back to uh, the psychiatrist and philosopher uh, Carl Jaspers, who, uh, who wrote his uh, very famous book, General Psychopathology uh, in, the, in the early 20th century. And he argued sort of like, you know, at, at that time, uh, there were sort of like two modes of scientific understanding that, that people talked about. One was sort of like what they called uh, causal explanations. And this was sort of like more mechanistic law-like uh, forms of explanation that sort of like, you know, like uh, A causes B and B causes C and sort of like, you know, and how, how they interact. Versus uh, you have sort of like, you also have like meaningful understanding, sort of like understanding some something by empathy and sort of like understanding how one psychological event uh, leads to another psychological event. And the insight of Jaspers was that uh, in, in psychiatry, both of these perspectives are essential, that we can't eliminate one in, in, in favor of the other. And we don't know in, in advance which phenomena would be better explained by by which perspective and sort of like you know which level of anal- which level of analysis so we we have to sort of like come in uh with, with an open mind and examine things from all these perspectives all these modes of understanding and and then this line of inquiry was sort of like later further developed uh for example uh by uh, McEwen Slavny's perspective of psychiatry approach which is very uh very commonly utilized at John Hopkins and and they kind of like they they have uh four different ways of four different perspectives or methods of the, the disease perspective uh the, the dimensional perspectives uh sort of like uh sort of like the the habit driving perspectives so addictive behaviors and the life story perspectives and and for a comprehensive understanding of any individual patient, we have to be able to understand using all these different methods. So, uh, so, so you know, so that you know that that is 
and that is a pluralistic and anti-reductionist stance because we're saying that we're not restricting ourselves to just one sort of explanation. We're not privileging neurobiology over other forms of understanding, but with an open mind, we're using all these methods to enrich our understanding of the person. I'm curious to hear your opinion. Maybe Jonathan, you can jump in on this. Just well, first of all, what the way of what I think of what you said, maybe more concretely for for audience members and for me as well. When I was reading your papers, you you described this um, using the explaining the properties of water by explaining the hydrogen oxygen uh, uh, atoms, and that doesn't really give the richness of explanation. For instance, of the the properties of water. And for instance, it doesn't really give an explanation to what condensation and rain is. Those are very complex integrated phenomenon that are still as equally um, scientific and is equally important in having their own um, explanations um, and are unique. Um, what, what I'm really curious to hear about uh, from what you just said, and, and, and Jonathan can jump in as well, is don't you worry that we might get lost in the search for multiple different perspectives and that we may deviate from this, you know, this, the simplest answer, which may be the right answer. There's always this idea that the, the, the aim is to get the theory as as simple as possible. And that is probably the most correct theory. Um, and that sometimes when we start to use different perspectives, we get lost in the picture. For instance, if the neurobiology, um, is the most fundamental element and we understand it completely wrong, then all those other phenomenon on top of it that we are trying to explain may not be accurate. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so there, uh, you know, you, you raise a very good point. Uh, uh, sort of like, you know, so the danger in, in this sort of pluralistic approach is, is what is often called eclecticism that we kind of like rely on this arbitrary ad hoc way of sort of like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and there's no organized way in which we are uh, approaching any particular uh, mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, patient or any particular diagnosis or any particular sort of like, you know, uh, research project. And and in some ways, this is what has happened with uh, our, our commonly used biopsychosocial model as well, that, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in as the way we commonly understand biopsychosocial model, we, we do sort of like, you know, include the biological elements, the psychological elements, and the social elements. But there, there's no guidance regarding sort of like, you know, how they're supposed to interact with each other, how they're supposed to fit with each other. So uh, so everyone, in the end, everyone pays lip service with the biopsychosocial model, but everyone sort of like does it in their own way and kind of like, you know, there, there's no yeah, uniformity. Absolutely. So it's, it's what's, what's called like uh, eclecticism. So that is definitely uh, the, the danger uh, that, that lies in, 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 in this approach. And this is why it... it uh, it, it requires a lot more uh, effort and hard work in, de- in trying to determine uh, sort of like what are the unique advantages and disadvantages of, of each perspective and, and each mode uh, of sort of like, you know, of mode of understanding. Uh, so the basic idea is that when we are approaching a new phenomena, we're kind of like, uh, we're, we're not making a priori assumptions that certain perspectives are not going to be useful. But we are approaching with the idea that we're going to investigate it using all these different perspectives. And then in the end, we may discover in the course of our scientific study that certain perspectives are much more helpful than, than other ones. And, and, and that sort of like, you know, may, may very well be the case. For example, you know, in, in something like, uh, like Alzheimer's disease, uh, we sort of like, you know, when, when we do the investigation, you know, as, as research has shown, it's a, there's a much more stronger neurobiological element. We, we know that, uh, you know, through, the, through these various processes, there's this degeneration of a brain tissue that happens. So, uh, you know, so that, that is something that science has established. Now, in, in the care of individuals with, with Alzheimer's disease, we, we still sort of like, you know, look at the overall picture. We, you know, their, their social determinants are still relevant. The phenomenology is still relevant. But in terms of understanding the etiology, we realize that there's a certain uh, uh, sort of like causal power that is provided by neurobiology that, that is not provided by other perspectives. Uh, and, but in sort of like in, in, a, in a different situation, you know, we may, we may find that uh, the psychological perspective offer, offers us the more, uh, the more sort of like more explanatory power or in a completely different, uh, different scenario, we might find that the, the social perspective offers us, the, offers us the most useful information. Uh, and we, we're not going to know that in advance. That, that is something that scientific work has to sort of like elaborate for us. Um, 
but it is crucial that at the very beginning, we don't restrict the methods available to us, that we don't sort of like shoot ourselves in the foot and say, oh, we're just gonna like, you know, uh, study neurobiology because we are very confident that that's gonna provide all the answers. You know, so, so, so that's, the, that's the important thing is that we don't restrict ourselves at the beginning. And well, just one more thing that I wanna say is that in recent decades, uh, there's been a lot of work being done in what is called complex dynamic systems. And, and there's this emergence of sort of like network theories. And this is the idea that there are, there are certain uh, systems that display uh, sort of like complexity and sort of like dynamicism and, you know, they have emergent properties and uh, under, uh, trying to understand that complexity in complex dynamic system requires different sorts of tools uh, than, than we may uh, sort of like use to understand mechanistic systems or, or linear systems or like, you know, think about sort of like, you know, uh, uh, the applications of, for example, chaos theory and, and weather, and then think about sort of like, you know, uh, all the, all these work, work being done on sort of like uh, computer networks and social networks. So there's this emerging area that is trying to tackle uh, complex dynamic systems. And uh, I, I think that hopefully that also provides us with more tools uh, regarding, how, regarding how to tackle uh, complexity in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. No, that, that makes sense to me. I, I, there's a few things you said that really resonate with me. Uh, as, as I was hearing you describe uh, essentially not writing off one model versus another, I, it reminds me of this, this concept of anchoring that we often get talked about in med school where people talk about, okay, well, just because this is maybe the most likely thing that makes sense in the moment doesn't mean that it's definitely the right thing. Like somebody, for example, if they have vitamin B12 deficiency, it's not because necessarily they're not eating enough. Maybe they have an autoimmune condition that prevents them from metabolizing or getting in their body and absorbing it. So it, it, the same kind of thing applies to this, I feel like. And I actually, I even think about, as you were describing this, the benefits of knowing different models just simply for our psychoeducation purposes. Like I've been able to describe to my patients you know, this is how things work from from a way I'm conceiving it psychologically. And then this is how it works neurobiologically using like, you know, fMRIs and the studies and so, so on and so forth about that. And then finding that sometimes they'll resonate more with one explanation versus another. And that right there makes it very practical to understand all of these, at least for my own clinical work. Like these different yeah, models. definitely, Jonathan. I, I definitely second that uh, the psychoeducation component being a, a place where different models can be really helpful and do resonate with different folks. You know, and it, it brings up to me the example of like um, psychogenic, um, psychogenic seizures um, and trying to explain those to a patient, finding that sometimes using a more biological um, explanation that setting seems to... Uh, make it more empathetic and helps explain some of the things that uh, the patients might be afraid of instead of saying, hey, it's it's all in your head. <laughs> it's it's due to trauma or, you know, along these lines, which it definitely may be the case. Uh, but I think saying, hey, there's like, you know, this aberrancy and a saliency network and that that's a network that helps us focus on things. Um, it helps them feel better about it, you know, in a way and kind of help, helps build therapeutic report. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I think different people uh, uh, sort of like appreciate different forms of understanding, you know, and, and, and some patients might sort of like uh, relate to one explanation more, more than more than the other. Uh, another thing is that um, I, I think generally, you know, in, in, our, in our society over the last uh, sort of like two to three decades, uh, uh, there's been a lot of uh, sort of like, you know, the, the, gen- the, the general sort of like scientific education that has been done that has emphasized a lot of sort of like neurobiological elements sort of like, you know, so genetics, we hear about mm-hmm. a lot of you know, people, Absolutely. you know, uh, people have been sort of like hearing about chemical imbalances through pharma, pharmaceutical like advertisements. Yeah, unfortunately. So, 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 so it's the case that our, the average patient who sort of like seeks psychiatric care at, at, at this time, they often have, they, they're sort of like, they're coming to us with, with a general sort of like reductionistic tendency, sort of like, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're coming to us, they're, they're thinking perhaps in, in, in biological terms. And, and sometimes, yeah. it's, you know, it, it, it takes hard work to, to get them to show a different way of thinking about their own problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I think that's a, that's a really good point as well as to think about it uh, from a different perspective. Not only the one that you um, might, might 
find more appealing and easier to grasp, but also a different way that might give you insight about um, a different perspective that might be helpful. And that brings me again to the <laughs> psychogenic seizures example, because I've yeah. been getting a lot of them on a service for some yeah. reason, uh, where, you know, bringing insight about past traumas and how they're maybe um, reenacting themselves um, in current situations and providing that level of insight is also helpful, you know. So I definitely see how scientific pluralism in that perspective can be really helpful in patient care, which I think is when it comes to teaching residents, um, as you said, mentioned earlier, people are always going to ask, you know, and I'm going to ask you now <laughs> is uh, how is this, uh, you know, it's, it's good to understand a framework. It's good to have an understanding of assumptions in general. Uh, how am I going to take this to clinical practice? And I know we spoke about one way of doing that, but what's another way in your mind or is there another way? Yeah, I, I think there are there are several different uh, aspects of, the, of this. I think the first thing, you know, it's, it's very important is to be aware of, of the different sorts of assumptions that, that we're making uh, when we sort of like, you know, think about our patients, when we think about uh, psychiatry and, 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 and diagnosis uh, generally. Um, and I, I think one thing often sort of like, you know, we uh, oftentimes people have this idea that, uh Sort of like you know the that they tend to minimize the role uh, of values uh, in sort of like in psychiatric diagnosis and, and various sorts of judgments that that we are that we are making when we decide whether we want to call something uh, this disorder or not and they also sort of like tend they tend to uh, sort of like minimize the, the the impact of social cultural factors the the, the impact of historical factors. Uh, on 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 how we uh, on how we sort of like approach patients, how we talk to them, and so I I feel like it's very important uh, first of all to become aware of that because we don't we normally don't talk about these things you know we 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 talk about specific diagnosis we we talk about sort of like you know specific sort of like research findings but it's rare that we kind of like step back and talk about these general conceptual sort of like questions and the general specific questions like you know like what is disorder what is what is mental disorder you know what what are levels of explanation you know like wh what is dysfunction so I, I think the first first step has to be that we have to become mindful that there are these different questions Questions and you know, oftentimes we we have already we are we're sort of like uh, we have certain uh, we have already we are already operating with certain answers that we have you know accepted implicitly, uh, but but they may or may not be correct. So so uh, so making those assumptions and those ideas explicit and beginning to sort of like analyze them and begin to question them has to be the first step. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to, to and, I, and I mentioned this, Jonathan, and I'll let you ask your question, which is like this idea of like uh, categorization of, of mental disorders. And one thing that we now people are tending to use is like maybe a perhaps what are way of describing is this um, research, um, research domain. Um, I, I'm forgetting the name now. It's slipping my criteria, research, research domain, domain criteria. criteria. Yes, re yeah. research domain criteria. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to like categorize things um, as a dimensional, uh, in a dimensional sense, as opposed to in a very categorical way. So that I think that's really interesting as well. Um, yeah, Jonathan, were you going to add anything? No, no. Essentially, it was we've had a lot of discussions about the DSM five in this podcast yeah. already. <laughs> yeah. So it's <laughs> I, you know the benefits and the the risks that come along with kind of adhering to this this um, manual we've been using that we accept as truth, but that there are a lot of nuances that you know we could miss if we're just adhering to the word of the of the DSM five. Um, and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the interesting thing as well, uh, and the interesting thing as well is like finding this like very uh, uh, kind of blurry line between what is normal and what is not is a tricky mm -hmm. part. And it's something that I um, kind of grapple with a little bit as, as even a resident now, definitely as a medical student. And I think I'll continue to for a long time um, that the way we define these uh, categorize disorders is to fit a percentage of society in a way within that there's like a spectrum of people that fit here and a spectrum of people that fit here and we're arbitrarily drawing the line yeah. <laughs> right here based on this categorization um, and it brings me to to your work about social deviancy um, versus mental disorders so you know 
I'm curious to hear about that. Yeah, let, let me before before I jump into the the social social sort of like deviance part, um, I want to say you know uh, there's a lot of discussion going on about classification these days, and people are realizing sort of like you know the, the limitations of the DSM, and you know there are alternative uh, classification proposals being made. There's like you know the RDOC by by National Institute of Mental Health, but there's also another framework called uh, HITOP which is a hierarchical uh, taxonomy of psychopathology. It's sort of like it's, uh, there's a, a lot of like excellent work being done by mm. different psychologists in, in that. And I think it's important to ask, like, you know, what is it? Why is it the case that the DSM has uh, proven to be insufficient and sort of like in, in, inadequate in advancing our scientific understanding? And, and that's because uh, sort of like, you know, one is that it kind of like, you know, by default uh, 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 sort of like takes a categorical approach sort of like you know it, 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 there's this implicit assumption that there are these certain categories that exist sort of like in the nature that can be discovered and the idea was uh, sort of like that if you looked at different sorts of uh, validators like you know and what 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 we mean by validators is that things like family history things like you know sort of like neuroimaging uh, things like genetics things like sort of like neurochemistry um, and that if we sort of like you know examine these uh, DSM categories at these various sort of like you know using these various strategies we will identify patterns that will converge onto certain categories that sort of like, you know, that genetics, which sort of like, uh, you know, would separate, you know, sort of like two separate sort of like, you know, DSM disorders. And we would also find distinct neurochemical mm. differences and mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, mm -hmm. we will find differences in brain circuitry. Yeah. And, and, th and that sort of project has 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 failed you know you know not mm -hmm. not because of lack of research we have been trying to sort of like you know we spend a lot of extraordinary amount of research in that and what we have find is that these different validators don't match up you know the, the findings from genetics don't match up with the brain circuitry and the findings from neurochemistry don't match up with you know uh, sort of like you know other, other forms of like you know let's say neuroanatomical findings so, so sort of like, you know, these different uh, validators are not aligning up in the form of discrete categories, as we would expect, you know, if, if, uh, uh, if, if, the, if the DSM really reflected what the, what the world or the sort of like, you know, nature is like. And what we instead have are sort of like, you know, different uh, domains of neurobiological, neuropsychological functioning. And, and we're also sort of like finding that different sorts of symptoms and different sorts of uh, uh, psychological problems ex are not discrete, they're not categorical, but they exist in a dimensional manner. They're kind of like spread out that you can sort of like, you know, you quantify them, the sort of like, you know, that whatever sort of like the, let, let's say, depressed mood, you can have a little bit of depressed mood, you can have a lot of depressed mood. So sort of like the, the, these problems seem to exist at a certain gradient. Now, every, every time we are dealing with a gradient, that means that there is no uh, sort of like dividing line to be found out there in nature. It means that any sort of dividing line that we make would be one that is sort of like, would be somewhat arbitrary and would be driven by what we are trying to accomplish. So, mm. uh, so a simple example Absolutely. of that would be something like high, sort of like blood pressure. So blood pressure is a dimensional sort of like, you know, a, a construct, you know, sort of like, you know, it, you know, it, it goes from very low to very high. And, you know, if you, if you graph it sort of like, you know, you get sort of like a nice curve. Now there, there is no sort of like dividing line out in out sort of like in nature that divides something like high blood pressure from low blood pressure or something like sort of like hypertension from from normal normal blood pressure. You know we are essentially some sort of like you know uh, uh, we are drawing a line ourselves, and so we have to ask ourselves you know why are we drawing a line exactly at this point? You know why demarcate blood pressure at 140 by 80? Sort of like you know not not less and more. And, and that, that brings us to our pragmatic goals. You know, what are we trying to achieve by drawing that line? And in the case of blood pressure, you know, what we're trying to do is that we're trying to identify at what degree of blood pressure do we have a higher risk of events such as stroke and sort of like, you know, cardiovascular events and other kinds of things. So we're trying to, the purpose of drawing a line in the case of hypertension is that we're trying to minimize future risk. So, so once we have some clarity on what our goal is, we can use sort of like scientific data to better draw the line, even though that line doesn't exist in nature. So if most of psychological problems and most of psychological life is also dimensional, 
then it means you know for uh, if our if for for our day to day clinical purposes we do have to draw a line then we have to be conscious of like you know what is our purpose in in sort of like drawing that line you know is it to identify those people who identify who sort of like respond to a certain treatment is it to identify uh, people who display sort of like a certain degree of severity or people who sort of like uh, demonstrate a certain degree of impairment you know so uh, so the first step is that you know unless we have clarity on what we are trying to do uh, what the goal of sort of like uh, of our demarcations is we're going to be sort of like doing it kind of in a confused arbitrary manner and i think that as historically what has happened with the psychiatry is that the the diagnostic uh, boundaries and the diagnostic cutoffs that we currently use they're they're rather arbitrary you know they're, they're not optimized by by research evidence towards any particular goal yeah, I it actually and as you're saying that it reminds me yeah. of a lecture that Monty and I got very early on uh, in our first year of training in psychiatry about uh, was it antidepressant neuropharmacology and that the antidepressant drugs tend to work more with greater severity of depression is what we learned. And so it's interesting thinking about these this gradient of depression and potential harms as well that we could do by starting a medicine when really the symptoms are not so negative that the side effects may be worse than actually just you know, maybe letting it pass or whatever is happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think this also sort of like shows that in, that different uh, treatments can sort of like, you know, have, have a, have a different risk benefit profile. So when, when it comes to antidepressants, you know, we, we sort of like, you know, the existing research sort of like data shows that for mild to moderate depression, the, the separation from placebo is very minimal, sort of like, you know, it, it barely separates from, from placebo. It's only sort of like in, when, in, when we have uh, severe depression that we sort of like see a, a more clinically significant difference. And so if you look at guidelines such as NICE guidelines from the UK, they recommend using uh, antidepressants uh, primarily in moderate to severe depression. And, and then they do not recommend using antidepressants as first line in, in mild depression. Versus if you sort of like think of something like, you know, like counseling or psychotherapy, you know, the, the, the sort of like the, uh, uh, the risk benefit ratio is quite different for psychotherapy sort of like, you know, versus it is for antidepressants and someone with sort of like milder, even sub-threshold forms of depression may sort of like gain a much more sort of like, you know, uh, may, may find psychotherapy very helpful, uh, you know, and while that might be a situation where prescribing antidepressants may expose the person to more harms and side effects that then is necessary. So, so that's, that's one again, you know, that, that again sort of like highlights the need uh, for us to be mindful of you know like why why these particular diagnostic boundaries not another i think a, a common example of that another i think where this clinically uh, comes up quite a bit is the case of adhd you know like we we sort of like you know for historical reasons, we, we have certain sort of like, you know, demarcating criteria for, for ADHD. And, and we have this sort of like mindset that only people who fall within this, within these diagnostic criteria are the ones deserving of stimulants. And anyone who doesn't sort of like, you know, fall within this diagnostic criteria, they are there somehow, they're just making it up or they don't need the stimulants, they're just using for recreation. Versus if you look at, versus if you look at the pharmacological effects of the stimulant medications, they're not confined to our, our current diagnostic criteria. I mean, like, you know, uh, stimulant medications produce a stimulant effect regardless of who takes them. You know, obviously that effect is greater in people who, who already have, you know, who are already having problems with attention concentration, but it's not like the, the therapeutic effect of the stimulant suddenly stops working because the DSM criteria are, you know, are not being met. So, so that again sort of like highlights that if you want to identify the like which group has the best sort of like, you know, risk benefit ratio for you know, treatment with stimulants, we can't just blindly assume that, that that demarcation is going to fall along the lines of what DSM thinks it's going to be. And what, what is that in your opinion that, uh, I mean, it seems like it depends on each disorder, right? But, um, you know, just speaking in, in terms of depression, a lot of our demarcation is a, you know, based on whether maybe possibly they may benefit from medication and, uh, you know, all, all the DSM, most of the DSM disorders describe this very important criteria, which is like social dysfunction. Um, this like very <laughs> broad and vague concept, um, that can apply differently to different situations. Um, 
what what do you think is um an appropriate demarcation uh for disorders like depression yeah i mean i i don't think there there's sort of like you know one uh one single answer to that and 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 the reason is that we have different goals and and depending on what our goal is we will have uh we'll we'll have different sorts of uh, of, of demarcations so for so for example uh you know if you know as i mentioned sort of like you know if you want to sort of like identify like you know uh Uh, sort of like you know what is the group that benefits the most from say psychotherapy you know in, in that case the demarcation will be different from you know who you know who benefits the most from uh, sort of like you know antidepressant medications or if we are doing an uh, let's say an epidemiological survey you know we might have sort of like different considerations um, in, in our in our mind and then there's another sort of like things that that at, at the moment are sort of like uh, Uh, less easily sort of like quantified. So, so there's this idea of uh, of symptom networks uh, in, in in psychiatry sort of like emerging. So, pe so people are talking about uh, that when we think about psychiatric syndromes, uh, what we have is an interlocking set of symptoms that are uh, causing each other, and they are in a self-sustaining loop. So basically, sort of like the idea is that let's say so, you know someone who has insomnia, you know insomnia can cause like also cause irritability. Insomnia can also cause fatigue. And if someone someone who has fatigue can also sort of like have have low mood and social withdrawal. And someone who has sort of like low mood can have uh, you know let's say sort of like you know thoughts of wanting to die and social ideation. So you have these causal links between different symptoms that different symptoms can reinforce each other. And if you have enough of these symptoms. They sort of like form a self-sustaining network. Is that you know, like once that network is activated, you know those symptoms are locked in and they're going to persist on uh, for for a while. And so, so that's sort of like a, that's a different way of understand thinking about psychiatric syndromes, particularly because it it moves away from let's say like a like a common common cause or or sort of like a neurobiological cause model. Versus thinking in terms of symptom networks, which are self-sustaining, and so according to this way of thinking, the the real demarcation between normal sadness and sort of like you know uh, a sort of like disordered sadness or, or clinical sort of like depression would be the when are sort of like when these symptoms have become self-sustaining. That whatever the triggers were, even if those mm. triggers those stressors go away. That the the depression is not going to go away because it is now in a self-sustaining feedback loop. So when we sort of like you know when DSM five came out, there was this big controversy going on about sort of like you know whether grief should be an exception to to major depressive disorder or not. Right, and and yeah. our sort of like mm -hmm. approach to that was very crude. Sort of like you know like our approach was like you know whether you know someone has these you know someone has these these numbers of symptoms or not and sort of like you know versus if we have if we take a network perspective it would say that uh, grief becomes a disorder when uh, sort of like the, the symptoms in the context of grief have generated a self sustaining feedback loop and in situations where that self sustaining feedback loop is not present then that would be sort of like what is called sort of like you know you would be like your normal sadness or you know your your, your ordinary grief so uh so that's you know that that is another example like you know another way of drawing a boundary that is like you know not as for example like as well quantified at at the moment but but sort of like offers you a different way of thinking about the demarcation hmm Yeah, absolutely, and that like it goes again for like the what's with social deviancy and what's what's grief versus what's depression, and I think that's a really unique way of looking at it because I, I think there was a lot of controversy around the bereavement exclusion, um, and and that being part of the uh, DSM change DSM five changes. Uh, I, I knew that came up yeah. in my medical school discussion classes yeah. actually. Is, <laughs> uh, Interestingly, as the kind of an anti anti DSM yeah. discussion uh, was brought up, yeah, on. I, I I think yeah. that the social deviancy question is very interesting, and I think historically, you know, th th this debate arose uh, in, in the context of uh, homosexuality declassification. So uh, uh, prior to to prior to 1970s. Uh, there was no official definition of mental disorders. You know, like obviously people spoke of mental illness and people spoke of mental disorders, but 
like you know like the field had not adopted any official definition because you know no one felt that you know any official kind of definition was needed but when uh, uh you know sort of like the controversy arose around homosexuality and you know there was organized protests by by the home lgbtq community and sort of like you know and they were there were sort of like people within psychiatry who were arguing that you no know, homosexuality is a is completely normal variant of sexuality it is not a disorder it needs to be classified so the question arose you know like how do we distinguish between that like how do we discriminate sort of like you know and so uh, so so that was the first time the profession realized that they need some kind of demarcating criterion and uh, robert spitzer who was uh, you know who's one of the most influential uh, psychiatrists of the 20th century also uh, led the 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 task force for dsm3 he was very active in the in the homosexuality debate and the approach that he used was that identifying distress and impairment as central criterions so he said that one of the central characteristics of of mental disorders is that they produce impairment and they produce distress and that is not a necessary con consequence in many uh, individuals with homosexuality that you know they are they're perfectly content with their sexual orientation so so that was the strategy that that uh, that Robert Spitzer uh, used uh, as a way of uh, drawing the boundary between what is simply considered uh, different by by society versus, versus what is considered um uh so, you know uh, disordered but it's sort of like you know it's immediately apparent that uh distress and impairment are very contextual phenomena you know like something that may be distressing or impair impairing in one situation might not be distressing and impairing impairing in another context at all and what might be distressing and impairing uh, impairing in one society you know might might not be distressing or impairing in others you know sort of from like another like going back to the ADHD example what may be impairing in a highly structured classroom you know may not be sort of like you know impairing in sort of like you know let let's say uh, uh uh in an african tribe or or even sort of like you know in, in pre-industrial societies so uh so you know this focus on distress and impairment uh leads us to realize that distress and impairment are essentially relational phenomena they they, they don't exist in isolation they exist in relationship with the rest of society and what that means is that we need to we need a continuous dialogue with sort of like with society to, to, to determine what these boundaries are and and as social sort of like moral uh, sort of like norms and other things go uh, undergo an evolution you know we would see uh, sort of like differences and changes in how we understand understand these things and even sort of like you know even in our times we are seeing these discussions happen in the case of transgender identity uh, we we are seeing these discussions happen in the case of autism and the neurodiversity movement uh, even sort of like you know in certain cases of ADHD so there's this sort of like this robust uh, social dialogue going on as to like you know what counts as distressing and impairing for what reason under what circumstances and what is the best way to kind of like tackle that and what what is the best way to 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 address that so uh so, so you know so the bottom line is that there is no easy criterion you know no value free criterion that we can rely on uh, any criterion that we use to demarcate between what we consider to be a disorder and what we consider to be simply uh, different or, or or socially deviant is going to be something that is negotiated between different stakeholders and that is negotiated between medicine and society it's it seems like to us in a way the dsm constantly our our criteria constantly it's kind of like the law it sounds like you know it's whatever society decides in that moment <laughs> you know what a reasonable doctor would do <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> there is, I think, there, there's a strong. I mean, law, for example, is is a, is a purely social. You know, it's a purely social construction. You know, so like we we completely decided. Um, and there's a there's a strong social construction uh, constructionist element to to psychiatry, psychiatric diagnosis, and our uh, our demarcations of uh, of disorder and normal as well. But there's also certain constraints by by biology. So, uh, so it's not a purely social construction, you know. It, it is sort of like it's it's a uh, it's a com combination of biological, psychological, and sort of like social influences, and and that's what makes it more more difficult than something like like the law. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. There are these yeah. these multiple models that are occurring all at once. Uh, Monty, I, I I didn't mean to interrupt you there. You were gonna. 
No, absolutely. I mean, I thought that was that's a pretty interesting point. I was adding to what I was going to say, actually, which is I think it's like constantly evolving. Uh, like we're going to have yeah. to, as you said, <laughs> maybe perhaps have an election <laughs> on right. the DSM yeah. every yeah. once in a while. Because I, and I think it's, uh, you know, you, you make a good point, Dr. Aftab, which is it, it's it's constrained by biology. It's not purely a social um, construct as the law is, uh, but the cr- the cutoffs might be so that depends on which society you belong to and what what's considered um, was considered to be uh, fitting those criteria. Um, curious to hear about um, what you think folks should be or residents, trainees, mental health professionals, even general population, how they should be. Uh, using this to apply to their life like i know that you speak a lot about cultural competency i'm curious to hear about that and how it can be more palatable and approachable for folks um um yeah i mean i i think uh something uh um i i think everyone realizes that psychiatry sort of like receives a lot of criticism sort of like you know we there's sort of like you know different aspects of society there are there sort of like you know are sort of like sister disciplines in, in, in science there are philosophers historians and so and so oftentimes you know a lot of the times uh, psychiatry uh, does receive like you know unfair criticisms as well and sort of like you know criticisms that, that are based on misunderstanding of what, what psychiatry is but then there are also sort of like other criticisms that you know I, I think do have philosophical merit do have philosophical legitimacy and have sort of like you know uh sort of like uh, that are based in general uh sort of like genuine ethical dilemmas and, and ethical quandaries and I, I think it's important to be mindful of that we have to be we don't have to be so defensive all the time when, when we're dealing with criticisms of psychiatry and that we have to be sort of like you know be willing to engage with these criticisms to to realize sort of like what 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 might be uh, sort of like genuine about about the way in which in which psychiatry is examined and scrutinized, and and I, I think we we haven't been doing that very very well in in, in recent years, partly because you know there's a there's a strong uh, anti psychiatry sort of like you know element in our in our in our sort of like societies you know that that we are always that you know kind of fighting, but but there are also sort of like other forms of philosophical critique. So so. One thing I think, you know, something that I, I have learned to do is sort of like willingly open ourselves to these more meaningful forms of criticism. And, and, and as a way of sort of like illustrating that, exemplifying that, you know, that's what I've been doing in my series for Psychiatric Times, Conversations and Critical Psychiatry, is that I've been engaging with people who have, who have made these meaningful criticisms to better understand uh, like w- what, is, what is going on, whether sort of like, you know, they, they relate to human rights issues or whether they relate relate to issues of over-radicalization and over-diagnosis or whether they relate to issues of sort of like neglecting uh, sort of like phenomenology or, or, or neglecting uh, sort of like, you know, the, the service user community, et cetera. So, so, so I think it's important for us to start engaging with, with these different stakeholders, uh, you know, who, who for various reasons have dissatisfactions with, with, with the way thing, things, are being, uh, things are being practiced. Hmm. That's a really good point, and I think something uh, they came up in in previous episodes. And it's always a um, a f- uh, kind of a difficult dance that we have to do as psychiatrists between balancing being critical and open to criticism, discussing criticism, but also being very much aware that um, our patients are highly stigmatized, our our work in relation to them is highly stigmatized, and how that. How, how that can come off publicly and how we're we're actually more on the side of more on the side of being stigmatized and needing to advocate perhaps than on the side where we're like all right we're too high in this ivory tower yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i'm curious to hear to hear what, what do you think yeah Jonathan? yeah i feel like um i, I feel like that you know, even among our medical colleagues, there's this, there's this stigma, you know, you hear it. And, and even I, I just met somebody new and they asked, so oh, what do you do? Well, I'm a resident. Oh, what kind of psychiatry? And there's this, oh, I bet you see interesting things. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're all just, I, I think it takes examining our intentions, you know, like really, you know, knowing, knowing the risks and benefits of psychiatry, knowing the downsides, knowing that we don't know everything. 
I, I think that's important. And that's, it's, it sounds to me like one of the big, like, really uh, take home messages of today as well is, is, is knowing like, yeah, like the limits and benefits of all these models. Right. I, I think we, we, we have to be humble because the truth is that we are dealing with some of the most uh, complicated and complex problems in, in medicine. Like, you know, like these are the problems mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, you know, like physicians have failed to solve conclusively for, for you know, for, for centuries, you know, and, and our, our specialty mm-hmm. is the one that is sort of like at the forefront of sort of like caring for these patients and sort of like, you know, trying to understand them and, and, and advance our scientific understanding. So, you know, this, this is sort of like, this is a difficulty that is inherent in, in the subject matter, you know, that the brain, the mind, uh, you know, this functioning is, is very complex. And, but, but the good thing is that, you know, I, I think historically sort of like this is sort of like the, the right moment for that where um, uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, like research effort and a lot of like philosophical effort and sort of like historical effort sort of like going into sort of like understanding neuroscience and understanding sort of like you know the relationship between uh, brain and behavior I think I think I kind of like uh, re- read somewhere um, on on the internet that like our generation of sort of like you know of scholars and scientists uh, we're we're rather late for exploration of the Earth. Like most of Earth has already been kind of like explored and mapped, and we are a little bit too early for space exploration because you know we, we don't have the technology yet. But we're kind of like right at the sort of like at the right moment for a scientific and conceptual understanding of our own minds and our own brains. And so, so I, I think 21st century sort of like, you know, um, I think possibly could be that the century of, of neuroscience and, and century of psychology is that where we finally begin to tackle these co- uh, sort of like complex problems uh, in a much more robust manner. And, and hopefully we begin to see some, uh, some more conclusive answers. Wow, what a, what a beautiful vision. We started our career at a good yeah. time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, thank you, Dr. Aftab. It's been, it's been wonderful talking to you. I want to respect your time again, everyone. Uh, for more uh, from Dr. Aftab, uh, read about his conversations in Critical Psychiatry for the Psychiatric Times. Um, and again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a wonderful episode and thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.